Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where my friend Lewis and I interview entrepreneurs, investors, internet creators, and people just doing really interesting things. Today, we have on Colton Sakamoto, the co-founder of Pomp Crypto Jobs. We talk with Colton in this conversation about how he got involved working with Anthony Pompliano, commonly known as Pomp, the popular crypto investor and influencer. We talk about how and why they chose to start a jobs website and a course together. We also get into Colton's thoughts on the future of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. It's a fun conversation. Colton's a young guy. I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation. Hope you learn as much as we did. Enjoy. Colton, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Super hyped to be doing this podcast with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you're Last name, this is probably a question you get all the time, but I didn't see an answer on the internet. So this is why we have a podcast, right? To ask questions we can't find the answers to online. Uh, your last name is Nakamoto. You work in crypto. Is this a coincidence? It's Sakamoto. Is this a pseudonym? Oh my, yeah, I got, okay. Go for it. What is yeah, it? <laughs> not a coincidence. It's funny because no one ever asked me this, um, you know, until about six months ago. And now it's like the most commonly asked question I get. Um, it's my real last name. Um, Real name's Colton, real last name's Sakamoto. I mean, do you think that you were led down this path because of your last name? Like Satoshi Nakamoto, like it's it's really uncanny. I want to point <laughs> out how insane it is. Right, exactly. Yes. Like I was very impressed with the, the creativity. Yeah, when I first learned about Bitcoin, um, obviously I did my research, um, discovered Satoshi. It's like, dang, that's a really like, that's pretty close to Sakamoto. Um, and I think honestly, um, it bought me some goodwill with Pomp when I first talked to him. Um, he probably thought the same thing too, honestly. And I know Polina for a while thought it was a, a pseudonym too. Yeah, we actually That's the same Polina that we're released uh, probably just released an episode with, depending on when this one's coming out. Yeah, but, yeah. Kyle and I are recording right after this the like end the of intro that outro to wrap that up. So oh, why nice. don't we get in a little bit to that story then of how Pomp Crypto Jobs came to be? Um, you know, I know a little bit about it, but you'll tell it. You'll tell it better. So just, just walk us through that. Yeah. So I graduated last year with my MBA. Um, around this time, um, got started working for a mortgage company. Had no clue, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, was you know pretty heavily invested in Bitcoin and following the crypto space pretty close. Um, New Year's Day, I was sitting on my couch watching football and Pomp tweets out, I need to hire a chief meme officer. Um, I had made memes with my baseball buddies just kind of messing around. Um, and so I figured maybe I'll send Pomp a meme. Like, um, at least I'll get a laugh out of it. I kind of talked myself out of it, kind of went back and forth. And then I made a meme of, of him and Peter Schiff. And I was like, ah, it's too good not to send him. And who's Peter Schiff for non-Bitcoiners? Peter Schiff... Um, is a guy that's mostly right but wrong about Bitcoin. Peter and Bitcoiners like see eye to eye on like pretty much everything, but he's just the guy that doesn't come to the same conclusion. Um, you know that Bitcoin should be the answer. Um, so Man. Peter is kind of stuck on his ways. Mm -hmm. He's kind of figured he's going to die on this hill, and it's funny because his son Spencer like clowns him, and he's like a total Bitcoin maxi. So um, hilarious. Yeah, I know that it's kind of part of uh, of Schiff's brand now to be against it. And it's like, uh, he's got so much capital invested in being a hater that like, is he even really a hater? He's too far gone. He... Yeah. He's always the bottom signal too. That's what people say on Twitter is like, like, you know, we're hitting a huge uh, Bitcoin dump. And then it's like, when's Peter going to tweet that Bitcoin's <laughs> over so we can rebound and, and get back to this bull market? 
Um, so I made a, a meme of Pomp holding um, Peter like a baby, you know, one of those baby Bjorn things. So I sent it to Pomp. I went back to watching football. A few minutes later, checked my phone. He goes, pretty good. I'm like, dang, Pomp responded. That's pretty cool. And then he tweeted it out and it got a bunch of retweets, favorites. And then Peter actually commented on it like, you guys are going to be the babies crying when Bitcoin goes to zero or something like this too. So it, it was just hilarious. Um, and then Pomp and I, Pomp kind of was asking, you know, what I'm doing, um, you know, how I make the memes, that type of stuff. So went back and forth via DMs for a little bit. And then we hopped on a call um, the next day. He kind of walked me through, I kind of walked him through my story. Um, he said, hey, look, you know, tons of people want to work in crypto, don't know how. There's not really a centralized location for, for crypto jobs. Um, do you want to help me build this job board? I was like, um, absolutely. <laughs> so I was doing, I was working for the mortgage company. I was giving like some baseball lessons on the side. I was already pretty busy, uh, but told them I was all in um, and then got to working on it immediately. Yeah, there's a lot no there. Tech experience, right? Yeah, none. Um, I, I took like basic coding classes in, in college, but... Um, you know, no expert. Yeah, there was one funny meme, meme I saw on your Twitter, and it was like, no, it was like the two, the black and the white hand uh, handshake, and it was like, no website experience, no crypto experience, me building a, a crypto uh, job board website. I thought that was a good one. Totally. Uh, yeah, the origin of that handshake meme. It's like from, is it Stallone or is it Arnold? And it's like a really long, intense one. I don't know, it's but like yeah, they're both just pencils. like super jacked, I know. like veins <laughs> everywhere. It's I know the scene. A it's lot of like chat a, energy. Classic 80s strongman move me. Yeah, yeah it's an awesome hilarious. scene. It's so, like the longest handshake in movie history. Anyway, <laughs> meme format. Exactly. I mean, I think like, uh, you know, Pomp gives you an opportunity. It's just uh, pretty much a no-brainer from the beginning. But, you know, the reason that we invited you onto the show is because of the intersection that you're working in, which is, you know, jobs and crypto. Like, I think... We're, we all here believe that, you know, the next 10 years will be dominated by crypto, that, uh, you know, software ate the world, it's blockchains are going to eat the world. Um, and job creation is one of the most important pieces of any, like, economy. And so being at that intersection, I think, is super exciting. Did you, did you have, um, you know, some pre precognition about doing that? Or was it just, like, pump drops this thing in your lap and you're like, wow, I'm... Like, this is the luckiest day of my life. Yeah, more of the latter. Um, I remember just sitting there and being like, wait, he's pitching me on this idea? Like, this is an absolute no-brainer. I'm in. And I remember Pomp being like, well, I said I was in, and I, I don't think he was fully sold on me yet. Um, I just, like, totally jumped at it. I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm like, this is, this is it. I'm doing it. Um, I got to working on it immediately. I messaged him the next day, hey, I'm all in, let's get to work. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, the rest is history. So a question I have for you, this is kind of a, uh, Kyle and I have this term, terminology we stole from someone else called clouds and dirt, where some of our questions on the podcast are like the big picture, kind of like the last question Kyle asked, my next one's the dirt, right? Very specifics. Uh, so there's something now, I was reading about job board sites yesterday and prep for this and with a bunch of other ideas. And there's now something called JAS or JABAS, job board as a service, where basically people will create a job board for, because niche job sites have gotten so popular that now totally. you like one click make them. Is that what you did or you made it yourself? What was like the actual process of building the website? Yeah, so it was software. It wasn't as easy as like a one click deal. Um, there was a lot of work that went into it, but um, made it pretty easy for someone like me without coding experience to go in and do that. But 
Um, I custom customize it the way I wanted it to. I want it to be super easy for users. I wanted companies to be able to post their jobs super easy. Um, and since we've made a lot of upgrades too, as well. So How many? One question I have. Oh, go this? For yeah. No, I'm kidding. What were you going to say? <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask. So it seems cool, right? And noble to be people need jobs, companies need postings, people, uh, companies recruits. Can you explain the actual business model? Like, how is this site making money? Why is it worth investing your time and energies in besides just being like helpful? Sure. Yeah, so we don't want to charge job seekers anything. We want it to be completely free for them to use. Um, you know, we want the job search to be as easy as possible for them. Um, the way it works is companies actually pay to post, um, and that's on a subscription basis. So depending on how many jobs they want to post, um, it's priced accordingly. Do you have a premium offering, like top of the stack? Because you have, you're at the point now where you have so many job postings that being in the top one, two, or three might actually make that's a difference a good question. the number of applicants. Yeah, so we have a, a featured company option, um, and that puts the company in this revolving door, and that's pretty much the most exclusive. That's like the BlockFi's, the Coinbase's, the Gemini's, um, the Kraken's. And then there's also featured jobs, and kind of like you said, that puts a specific job posting um, at the top and highlights it in, in the um, website colors. And what we found is a lot of the startups like to use that just to highlight one specific position. Like that key hire. Correct, yeah. I mean, it's good marketing too. Like one of Lewis's things is that he likes to look at job postings for companies to get a sense of where they're going. Um, and yeah. so like, you know, having strong um, job postings on a website like Pomp Crypto Jobs, I think, you know, speaks to brand identity, um, you know, more than people expect it to. Um, and, you know, hopping on there and seeing that BlockFi has whatever it is, 70 open jobs. It's like, wow, they, they've got to be growing quickly. Totally. And they've actually hired 20 people specifically from our job board just wow. since we've launched in January, which is awesome to see. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, that was going to be my question too, is uh, how many people have gotten jobs? Do you know? Do you have any numbers? Yeah. So actually um, getting hiring data from companies is like pulling teeth. Like they hold their cards pretty tight. Um, I know that Coinbase has a few hires. I know that Gemini has a few. Exodus, BlockFi obviously has 20. And then there's been um, some more sprinkled in at startups. I would say probably close to 40 or so, um, so far. Mm -hmm. Is there any piece of kickback from that? Because I know it's like some the recruiting business in general, right? If you make a key fi traditional finance hire, you might get a percentage of their salary for however many years they stay or something. Do you have anything like that in the works or not quite yet? Or is it in So we, Pomp and I have kicked around the idea of launching a recruiting arm for more specialized roles. Um, and that's kind of in the works right now, but um, not directly with the job board right now. Mm -hmm. What skills do you think are, um, you know, most in demand? There's a bunch of ways to ask this question. I want to make sure that it's, uh, you know, the best way to ask it. If you miss something, I can ask the other yeah, like, pieces. You've yeah. What skills are most in demand in crypto? Um, what skills are demanding the most um, money? And what skills do you think have the highest upside for learning? Yeah. So first I would say engineers and developers. Um, especially with the is that startups, solidity, is that... quality. Yeah, solidity, um, and then some UI, UX stuff as well. Um, really, just depends, you know, mm -hmm. what the company's looking to do. Um, that's number one, and then number two is this is the non-technical bucket. And a lot of times, they're looking for people from traditional legacy finance worlds that can make the jump. Um, but furthermore, they're looking for people that just are really passionate about crypto. 
that's kind of why we designed um, the crypto course is to help people with non-technical backgrounds um, get in front of as many recruiters as possible and kind of bridge that gap into this new world. So another dirt question for people who aren't Ethereans and are Bitcoin maximalists, they are not learning solidity. What's the dev skill and demands for non-Ethereum people who like, don't believe in that? I, not yeah. making an opinion myself, of course, just there's a group of people out <laughs> Tread there who are like, Ethereum's not a, you know, anyway. They'll, we got our whole show pitchforks. canceled for real if you slip up with They'll come with their, their pitchforks. Um, yeah, good question. I know there's a lot of development on the Lightning forks. Network. Yeah, <laughs> they're hard forks. Um, a lot of developments happening on the Lightning Network, and then companies like Sovereign are actually trying to build DeFi on top of Bitcoin. Um, I want to sort of tread lightly and, and not back myself into a corner with my lack of technical knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that there's a lot of exciting um, projects with that. And actually with the course, we had one of the lead Lightning developers um, actually in the course and then come back and talk as a guest speaker as well. Um, he works directly with Jack Mahlers at Strike. Wow. And he's, I think, the VP of engineering uh, at Strike. Do you mind sharing what Strike is? Yeah, so Strike My mom gets real lost on the CryptoPods. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So Strike um, is essentially like a Venmo um, or like a Cash App that utilizes the Lightning Network to you can send money anywhere um, across the globe, and it converts to currency, and it utilizes the Lightning Network um, to make that transaction. And Lightning's on top of Bitcoin. Correct. Lightning is the second layer on top of Bitcoin that um, basically just speeds up, you know, payments. I also don't want to back myself into, you know, a corner of not knowing anything, but the, the common um, piece of feedback on Lightning Network and DeFi on top of Bitcoin is like, um, you know, you're, you're creating these third party institutions that that must be trusted. At least that's the criticism that I've heard. Um, you know, I don't I'm not sure if you're qualified to answer that question, but do you think that's true? You know, I think that there does need to be this layer of development on top of Bitcoin um, for it to fully scale and for it to reach its potential. And I think there's a lot of kind of, like I said, exciting development happening in terms of if it needs to be fully decentralized. I'm not entirely sure, um, you know, how that's going to play out and how that looks. But I think the first step is just putting something in motion so it can compete, mm -hmm. you know, with the Ethereum's on that front. Um, I think Bitcoin's its own beast and should be respected, you know, in its own category. But I think also... Um, it needs to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ethereum and some of these other ones, too. Mm -hmm. So I have a question before we... And I'm going to stay out of this entirely because I just don't like corners. I'm literally standing <laughs> in the corner of this room, so that's that's my limit for today. Uh, I have a question about audience-first building, and then I do want to transition to the course because we've brought that up a couple of times, and that's second big point on, on our roadmap. But a lot of the reason that Kyle and I started this podcast is the concept David Perel popularized of audience first building, which is essentially if you just have a media arm that's successful, then you kind of build any product tangentially related to your media, it's like successful immediately. So what was your experience launching something with Pomp with him having maybe let's say four or 500,000 followers on Twitter, 80,000 people on his email list, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I got a website now. So you're very different from the people who are going with zero customers and a zero person email list right off the bat. Yeah, so he actually has almost a million mm -hmm. followers. I was talking to this with him yesterday, and he's like, yeah, I'm getting like 5,000 new followers every day, which is absurd. Yeah. Um, I only January. have like 500,000, 600,000, um, something ridiculous. like that. 
yeah, crazy. And he does a great job with, with building his audience. He told me something a few days ago that stuck with me, and I'm not sure if it's his quote directly, but he says, um, first time entrepreneurs optimize for the product. Um, second time entrepreneurs optimize for the audience or the distribution. And I think the thing that I've really noticed is how important that distribution channel is. People like Balaji and Naval talk about it all the time, but you can go directly to the consumer. And if you have you know, a loyal following, you can essentially drive traffic to anywhere. And so in your experience, the website had traction very quickly. Very quickly, yeah, and that's, this, right. exactly. This is me asking if the theory actually worked. Yeah, the theory so, worked, yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, the second piece of that, right, the other product that Pomp's kind of brought to his audience, and one thing I'll point out here that I think is, I got a kick out of with the podcast is, projects that are younger than the podcast. So, you know, in our head, yep. the podcast is still relatively new, even though this is, you know, 15 or 16 months in, but we're talking about a course that you created on a platform that was created by a guest we interviewed before she even started the company. Cause we interviewed True. SKO before yep. she even launched Maven. So it's cool to see kind of people who've been following the podcast for a long time. There's people, you know, it's the right time to start now. Cause you know, 10 months later, you're going to have traction and have helped 20 people get their jobs and have people building courses on top of your platforms that are bringing in, you know, multiple six figures. So what is the pomp crypto course? What's your involvement with that? Right. And what's going on there? the origin story too. Cause you know, you, you've got, we, we walked through pomp crypto jobs. You did a good job with that. He's like, why don't you do this course with me? Yeah. So similar thing kind of happened there with the course. I was, I believe it was a week before we launched the job board pomp DM would me. I didn't even have his number yet at this point. He DM me, Hey man, do you want to help out with this course I'm building too? I'm like, yeah, why not? Um, so he put me in contact with someone from Maven. It wasn't called Maven at the time, actually. Um, he kind of filled me in and basically what they just needed was like logistical help just to make sure everything ran smoothly. This was before the beta cohort. And so the course, like you said, is built on top of Maven. Um, and it started as just a fundamentals of Bitcoin and crypto course that Pomp taught. We ran our beta cohort with about 40 students, ran super well, but we found halfway through the course that about half of these students really want to work in crypto, but they don't know how. Um, similar problem we're trying to solve with the job board. And so um, the big jump between the beta cohort and the next one was just how do we give job seekers as many resources as possible through the course? Um, how do we make it worth their while and how do we get them in front of you know as many recruiters as possible? So. The big thing from beta cohort to cohort two was, you know, we launched a virtual job fair where we had companies like Coinbase, um, OKCoin, Ava Labs come talk directly to the students. We've actually had a number of students already get hired, which is super awesome to see. Did you go through the course yourself as a way to learn? Like no, so I was just out? like an administrator um, mm -hmm. with the first beta cohort and then um, kind of learn, learned as I went, obviously I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with crypto, um, had talked with Pomp for a while, but, um, was on the other side there. So what are your, um, thoughts around crypto, you know, in general, like, you know, I made a big statement that it's going to eat the world. Like, do you believe that? Are you a Bitcoin maxi? Are you in some other sort of, uh, of camp? What are your thoughts um, on what's happening now at the bull market? I know there are a lot of questions. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah I'm going to tread lightly here. I'm not, I don't want to use the word maximalist because of the connotations. That... He's not a maxi. Sakamoto is not a maxi. <laughs> uh, not a maxi, but I would say that the whole ecosystem is really dependent on Bitcoin. I think it's important that Bitcoin 
um, preserves its status as, as number one. I think Bitcoin is our best chance at globally exiting the fiat system or just providing a solid alternative to it. Um, and I think that needs to stay number one. I mean, the use cases are, um, in my eyes, you know, pretty obvious. Fiat has an expiration date. Um, the global reserve currency has an expiration date. History has shown that. What do you mean by that? Um, with our dollar, I mean, we've lost, I believe, 96% of our purchasing power since, um, you know, 1915 or something like that. Um, so it just provides an alternative, um, you know, sound money where you can just take your fiat, you can put it into Bitcoin, and it's going to appreciate over time. Now that sounds very um, certain. I, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I guess Not like why is, Not fiat, financial advice. why is fiat bad? Because I, I, you know, I agree with you, but like we've got to really build from the, the base level. Yeah. Um, it's bad because there's a group of people the Federal that Reserve. we don't have anything yet. Yeah. Um, that can go do whatever they want whatever they see fit and it impacts tons of people. Um, they say that inflation is the invisible tax. You know, people that own assets, their assets are going to appreciate. Um, the people that are just, you know, looking to buy, you know, consumer goods are going to get hit pretty hard by inflation. Um, it doesn't really seem like it's happening here in the U.S. Um, I think the CPI is probably not accurate, but um, in other countries like Venezuela, where there's been, you know, currency crisis, Weimar, Germany, um, there's definitely a use case for, for sound money. Yeah. One thing, uh, Andreas Antetopoulou uh, talks about is how, <laughs> like, you know, he's explained Bitcoin to, to thousands of people. Um, but, you know, he says that when he explains it to people who um, are from Venezuela, it does not take very long for them to fully understand, um, you know, why it's powerful and, and why it can change their lives. And I think, uh, you know, it's more difficult for Americans to understand because, you know, the the um, the world that's been invented and created by fiat currency is pretty damn good. Um, you know, I've got a TV in front of me and this laptop like uh, but I agree. I think, you know, the Federal Reserve sort of subverts the natural order of the world, which is like you either allocate capital or you spend your time to make capital. And um and they're the one institution that can um, basically not do that and create it out of thin air. And when they do create it out of thin air, they are taking from, um, you know, the people who are allocating capital and um, giving their time to get that capital. And so it's, it's uh, I'm with you. Yeah, I think a good way of putting it for people to understand is ask your parents, or your grandparents, how much it was for like, a hamburger, milkshake, and fries, you know, back in their day. And they'll probably college say something. Education. Yeah, it were college education. They'll say something like, you know, five cents to, you know, <laughs> five bucks. And now now you can't get the same thing for, you know, less than like 15. Maybe maybe in Alabama a little bit cheaper. Um, hey, man. No Alabama hate here, okay? No Alabama hate. It's just, it is know, a lower a cost bit. of living. It is. Yeah, definitely lower, lower cost. cost of living. Gasoline, half the price right now is Vegas. I know, it's so crazy. That, that could have some other problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, crazy. But um, I think that really stresses the importance of, you know, having a way of opting out of that. Um, I think you can extrapolate, you know, 10, 20 years in the future and then also factor in how much money was printed just in the last year. And that really just demonstrates, you know, the use for, for some money. It was a lot so, of money. Actually, Spoiler alert. It was a lot. 
Yeah, there's a that's lot of what, money. Uh, Michael Saylor, probably one of the biggest Bitcoin whales, if not the biggest Bitcoin whale, he basically said, "You're the way you should value Bitcoin is what you think the M1 money supply will increase by in the next X years, and like that's how you should value Bitcoin." Uh, I totally just forgot the question. I had a question actually related to Dude, Michael yeah. Saylor. Um, oh, it's uh, about taxes. Just to oh, okay, not forget. Well, um, I'm sort of forgetting too. Michael Saylor is okay, so a taxes. big Bitcoin <laughs> maximalist, huge Bitcoin yep. maximalist. Um, MicroStrategy, publicly traded company. I'm trying to think about how I tied that in. I had it in my head, but I forgot. So let's taxes. just let's roll the taxes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. My Come back to about me. Taxes is that you know you've used this really seductive language of escape the traditional financial system, and but what if your Bitcoin appreciates like? How do you escape the tra like traditional financial system without one, you know, participating in potential, potent like potentially uh, unregistered security things, and also with appreciation that the government can't get a piece of? Like, how does the fiat like? How can I live as a citizen in this country and escape? Because they're going to want a piece of any benefit I have. Yeah, so I want to turn the cameras expert, off here. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just never sell. I mean, um, there's no unrealized <laughs> capital gains tax. Just never sell. There you go. There we go. Easy answer. Yeah. I just don't really think in fiat terms. I mean, and I think that what Bitcoin does is it incentivizes saving, um, which is huge. I price sort of everything in the opportunity cost of Bitcoin. It's like I could buy a couch or I could take $400, put it in Bitcoin, and maybe um, that $400 is going to be worth 1000 or, you know, um, down the road. That's why he's got no cutlery behind him. It's all going exactly. to Bitcoin. Uh, exactly. I did remember what I wanted to say. And, you know, that brings up another point, though, is thinking about things in, the ter in terms of Bitcoin. Um, and both of these things are related to Michael Saylor because Michael Saylor and Jeff Ross had a really interesting conversation about um, about thinking in terms. I have no idea. It was just a, like okay. a YouTube video. Um, and I think it was Jeff Ross. It might not have been. I'll try and find it and link it in the, in the show notes. But um, point is, that was the first person that I had heard thinking of things in Bitcoin. And his argument just made a, a lot of sense to me. But um, another thing about Michael Saylor, he went on the My First Million podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. Um, but basically, they did not like really jive their chemistry was not great um and you know one of the questions that um sam parr asked michael saylor was what are the downsides like what has um you know one like what are the downsides for bitcoin in the future and two what has making this huge bet um calling bitcoin hope done to your company um and michael saylor basically said there are none there there is no downside and it's like that just that just can't be true. So, uh, what are the downsides? What's the downside? Yeah, that's what uh, I got bring, Kyle. Yeah, there's a few downsides. One Here we is, go. You know, everything thing. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that well, as the price appreciates, it's bittersweet because it's it's harder to buy more Bitcoin for less. Um, but it also sort of confirms you know what a lot of people have thought, and that you know Bitcoin's working. It has a real use case. But when the price is low or there's a big crash, like people think you're crazy uh, for just totally, you know, aping into Bitcoin. Um, the other downside is it's volatile. I don't, I don't think it's a downside for me personally, but I, other people definitely think it's a downside. And a lot of people say it's um, volatile upwards, which is a good thing, and no one's going to complain about that. Um, but obviously, you have your stuff like the, you know, the 50% drawdowns and things like that. And 
the way I look at it is I just don't look and just don't care because I have a long time horizon. It's just like, whatever, you know? Um, but I think we're trained to think linearly. I mean, um, time, you know, is, is linear, at least the way we, we understand it. Um, you know, the day is sort of like a linear process. I get up, I go to work, you know, I come home, work out, go to bed, repeat. Um, stock market up at a 45 degree angle, fairly linear. And then you have this, you know, new Bitcoin thing that's just like charts going all over the place. And I think it just makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it's hard to think exponentially. I think, you know, and this is one of the problems that I have with Bitcoin is that um, I think, you know, it's less about the volatility of the price and more about its volatility keeping it from being uh, the use case that it was intended to. So your grandfather, Satoshi, uh, <laughs> in the um, in the white paper, you yeah. know, he talks about it being digital cash. And, and as digital cash, you cannot have something be so volatile as a medium of exchange where in between the time that I sent it to you and you and and you get the goods, you know, it's just, it's not, um, remit remittable, I guess is, is the word. And so I think, you know, it doesn't bother me either. I hold Bitcoin. And when I see the price drop, it's like, I probably should be buying right now because I, I believe that in the future it'll be higher. But I think, um, you know, it, it's sort of the argument is that the volatility, um, keeps it from being its ultimate desired use case. And, and so what do you think about, about the discrepancies between, uh, the white paper and, and sort of the narrative that exists around Bitcoin today? Yeah, good question. I think that Pomp talks about this a lot too. You know, one Bitcoin is just one Bitcoin and the volatility is just people's perceptions of it. Um, totally understand that it, it's not the best right now for transacting, but I think it has an entirely different use case. We're in price discovery um, basically every day trying to figure out, you know, what this thing is, how to price it accordingly. And I think it'll only get more stable over the long run. Well, I think that, you know, I was Kyle and I have both read recently The Infinite Machine by Camilla Russo. Very good book about crypto for anyone. We'd love to have Camilla Russo on if she ever listens to this. <laughs> I think the more direct way, you know, you and I do that sometimes, and I think the more direct way is to, to ask them. Unless someone's listening and knows Camilla Russo. And <laughs> please connect the dots. Hey, you never but, know. Uh, you know, in 2017, when Ethereum and Bitcoin were both getting blown up out of proportion, and, you know, this might be romanticized, but Vitalik basically said it was a bad thing that Ethereum was priced that high because it was not in proportion to the actual use case. Like, the adoption was one if you priced it on adoption and like real world value provided besides just speculation, it should be like one tenth the price. And he figured the PR of it rising and crashing would make everyone think it's like a scam. And well, I mean, it was like actually growing more slowly and appropriately, it would be better. So I like the way you contextualize things in mm -hmm. terms of we're still in price discovery uh, and how much speculation versus, you know, Bitcoin's actually being used in Venezuela and Argentina for people right. to transact without their governments. Totally. And I, that's difficult. Yeah. And I, obviously the, the price is pretty correlated with the having with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, obviously that was the effect of that and whether or not it should be priced like that. I think the ultimate thing about this is it's a 24 seven free market and the market just gets to decide, you know, what the correct price should be. There's no government to come save you. And you know, that's one thing exactly. that I really liked is like, we saw a 50% drawdown or whatever it was last week and there were no bailouts, like people that had leverage, they got wiped out like sayonara sucker like 
Um, yeah, learn your lesson. I think that, you know, Vitalik's statements in 2017 made a lot of sense. It's like, how many people are bankless? Like, how many people has the desired use cases that, we, that we've dreamed of actually come true? And um, because the answer is no, do these prices um, reflect that reality? But recently, and, you know, in a bullish way, he was like, you know, I think cryptos are close to being ready for the mainstream and like are, are on track to get there. And so, um, you know, that's sort of a reversal of what we saw him say in 2017 in this bull run. And so um, as someone who's just so, so smart and like, you know, Vitalik, big, big fan. But um, totally. So it's just, you know, that was a bullish sign for me for the future is that he's saying that now. Yeah, Absolutely. Go ahead. I was going to bring it somewhere else unless you had a comment. No, go go for it. Okay. This is really just a hard hard left turn here. Hard, another hard fork. Damn it. Okay. I love it. But burning question. Kyle's all mad at me, but he's fake mad. Uh, you got hired as the chief meme officer. <laughs> Do you still make memes for Pomp? Like, has that actually been an important part of your role? Yeah. So he hits me up every once in a while um, to make him some memes. I think the most recent was the Bitcoin pizza. I don't think he ended up tweeting out, but I made one that he retweeted of this guy just like hitting golf balls and I replaced the golf balls with pizzas and I replaced the guy's face with pomp. Um, <laughs> that one did pretty well on Twitter. And then he also had some beef with Jason Calacanis, early Uber investor. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife holds a bunch of Bitcoin, but he's kind of on the fence about it. They went on CNBC, duked it out. And then like a day later, they went back again, did the same thing. Uh, so I made some memes for, for him there. I like put him on a star Wars clip, um, and Papa's Yoda saying like, you don't understand or something like that. That's funny. So Pomp has a pretty good, question. go for it, Lewis. What are the tools you use to make your memes? Are you a photo, Adobe Photoshop? You like actually have a skill set? Are there no code tools that just make this so easy that like any idiot could like, if they have an idea, they could put it on the meme. What's like your secret. Yeah. So no Photoshop. Use? Um, what I usually do, my meme process is I work backwards. I have an idea and then I find a meme for it. A uh, good example of that. I eat Chipotle every day for lunch. Pretty much. I have one right up the street. I had it for lunch today. I had this meme of this guy. It's the guy with the two buttons and he's like sweating. I can't make a decision. Um, and it's like go to Chipotle for lunch or go to Chipotle for lunch. So I just like come up with these scenarios. Um, a lot of them pertain to, to Bitcoin and things like that. And then kind of work backwards from there. In terms of tools, I honestly just use Snapchat and like iMovie uh, on my phone. It's kind of like when you're a writer and you yeah. and you you look at the world through the lens of like you're like capturing thoughts. Shout out David Perel's fifty uh, like article email. But instead of you being a writer, you're a memer, and it's just like yeah, the whole the whole memes. world's a meme, like. I think in sats and memes, that's it. All right. So, but what is your Chipotle order? And um, I'm pretty plain. Yeah. I just get like a burrito with chicken, rice, cheese, queso, and always get chips. Queso. See, that's, that's, that's a hot take. Yeah. Uh, so another question. Yeah, I might have to end the call back, here. Back on that. <laughs> I have no, no problems with your Chipotle order. Uh, Appreciate it. I, mine's completely different, but you know, no problems with yours, right? Yeah. So another question is, what are some companies in the crypto space? I think a lot of our listeners, you know, master demographic, they're young, they're looking for jobs, or if 
they want to start a company, but if they don't want to start a company, they want to work somewhere that doesn't suck to work. What are some companies that you've heard just like fantastic things like working there? Sweet. They take care of you. You don't hate your life. So a lot of people are super excited about BlockFi. Um, Obviously, Palm's an investor there. Um, Super cool company. Um, It had some bad press over the past week or so, but everyone that I interact with at BlockFi is super awesome. I think they're building a really good product. Um, So BlockFi is number one. Another one that I'm excited about is Sovereign. They recently joined the job board. Palm's also an investor there. And they're just trying to build DeFi on top of Bitcoin, which is I think is um, super cool. We'll see if it works. Yeah, that's what you know. We talked about it, but DeFi on Bitcoin is what uh, Pomp says is the most underpriced thing right now, and so uh, Sovereign might be a, a good thing to look at. Um, I know you mentioned uh, Jack Maulers. Who um, are your other favorite Bitcoin entrepreneurs and founders? Oh. Can I just twist that into like general influencers, like people to go to for information? No. Yes. No. <laughs> um, in terms of entrepreneurs, you know, um, Brian Armstrong from Coinbase. Yeah. Um, I think he's awesome. Um, you know, Flory and Zach at BlockFi. Um, but in terms of like influencers and people I go to for information, Sailor, Breed Love, Pomp, Nick Carter, um, that whole crew. That's a good list. Flory is sliding into your DMs. It's not her. She's there's so many Flory fakes on Twitter right now. There's so many fakes of everyone in the crypto yeah. space. I've been getting attacked by the Flory fakes. Uh, <laughs> I, I sent her a DM. I pitched her on the podcast, and she's yeah. not replied yet. So if you know Camilla who or Flory, you know Flor- the co-founder of BlockFi. Oh, yeah, I've had okay. no interaction with with, but, with Flory, so I can't help you there. But maybe yeah, po- point um, is, I sent her a DM, and I got flooded with fake Flory DMs after that. And you know they're not getting my. Maybe brain she. She sent the cyber hornets to come get you. I don't know if you sent it to the right one then. Um, (laughs) So if the fake ones have 20,000 followers, we're all in trouble. I think that we will. Actually, I saw a fake one that was verified and had like, like 12,000 followers the other day. It was crazy. That's impressive. That's impressive. But you go and it was like all Ariana Grande, like fan page stuff. So I'm not sure how they went from Ariana Grande fan page to scamming people. What I'm learning from this crypto. is I go back to the drawing board and make sure I send it to the right Flory. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. I think we'll transition now to what we like to call our bonus round. Just uh, a few quick questions and we'll wrap up. Um, sure. So I know, you know, I think that this is probably how you're, you're going to see your life in the future is like you had baseball and you had crypto. And so mm-hmm. are there any, um, you know, similarities, anything that you, that you took from baseball that you apply today to your life? Obviously it was a huge part of your life. So there's a lot of things, but, um, you just riff on that. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that Bitcoin and baseball are similar in that you never know what the day is going to hold. And sometimes when stuff feels like really bad, you're just around the corner is greatness. When you go over 10 or over 20 in baseball, like you feel like you're never going to get a hit again. Um, when Bitcoin's down 50%, you feel like this is it. It's the end of the road. Um, so just kind of maintaining like a neutral outlook is, is number one. Um, two, just working hard. I mean, in baseball, you don't usually need to be huge. You don't need to be the fastest. Um, obviously, the MLB players are outliers, but you, know, you can make it pretty far with a good work ethic in baseball. And I found the same thing with, with the job board and all this too. It's just like, just learn by doing, just put yourself out there, uh, put yourself in uncomfortable situations and just, you know, sink or swim. Um, 
and then just like learning how to, you know, connect with a bunch of different people, um, help people out and, and um, that sort of thing too. Great answer. So here's an opportunity for redemption, at least in Kyle's eyes. I'm still not upset with you about Chipotle. You're from <laughs> Oregon, Portland specifically, yep. to my knowledge. Yeah, it's kind of a, a funky town with a lot of vibes. I don't know. I don't. A lot of vibes. A lot of vibes. Uh, what's the best place to get coffee in Portland and oh, coffee order? Really good question. So there's a place right up the road for me. I walk there, you know, pretty much as often as I walk to Chipotle. It's called Jim and Patty's. Really good coffee. Really good breakfast sandwiches. They put it on a biscuit. So good. Um, I'm a Starbucks guy too. Starbucks started in Seattle, which isn't too far. I like the Pike Place roast. I just drink black coffee. Um, so I would say those two. Starbucks is kind of a crap answer, but it's convenient. Does your cute place accept Bitcoin as payment? They don't accept Bitcoin. Last question for me. Bitcoin price. Let's say, uh, let's just say 10 years from now. 10 years from now. Oof, May 26, know. 2031. Um, oh, geez. It's weird to think how old I'll be then. We'll send you this um, on that day. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. You're gonna <laughs> the time capsule. Me. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll remind me, exclamation point. Yeah. I think 10 years from now. Wow. A lot of stuff needs to happen. Um, Crypto's only 10 years old. I know this is, this might have been the wrong know, time right? frame. Yeah. And then you just have to figure in how many more people are. I think it's similar to early adoption of the internet. A lot of people think it's dumb. A lot of people think there's no use case for it. Only a small percentage. If you look at the distribution of like adopters, we're still, you know, very much so in the early adopter um, cohort there. Um, in terms of actual price prediction, though, I think it, we could see Bitcoin upwards of 1 million price in US dollars 10 years from now. I agree. Well, price in U.S. dollars. I mean, that that just could mean the dollars. Well, like, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. So if you so, want, if you want my yeah. Bitcoin price prediction, <laughs> one Bitcoin is going to be one Bitcoin in ten years. There you now. go. Yeah, your Bitcoin supply prediction. That's an easier answer. Yeah, uh, exactly. So I just forgot my question was super good question. I promise. Uh, it was. Kyle, are you sure you don't have another question? I don't know why I just didn't write that. <sighs> um, come to me. Yeah, we're going to just keep talking until you think of it. Yeah. It sounds like it was a good question. <laughs> Sorry, God, I didn't mean to put you, you on. You just edited um, it out, right? No. Yeah, let me see. Uh, let's see here. Uh, other blockchains. So, you know, Solana, um, you got BSC, obviously Ethereum. Um, are there any that you think have, um, you know, potentials for to be to be huge? You know, or I don't know how to ask that yeah, question so properly. Yeah. So when I said I wasn't a maximalist, I think that there are going to be use cases, you know, for, for other blockchains and for other projects. Um, I think one thing that we're going to see unfold in the next, you know, couple of years is going to be this proof of work versus proof of stake mm. um, battle. Ethereum's moving to, to proof of stake. Um, a lot of people like it because of the environmental or lack thereof impacts, they say, um, don't want to get too much outside of my area of expertise and comment on something I don't know a whole lot about. Um, but what I have heard recently, and, and actually it was brought to my attention by Rockstar Dev, who works with Mahler's at Strike, is that proof of stake is actually a lot, is super similar to our current financial system in that um, you stake more coins, you have more power. You have more money in our system, you have more influence. Um, proof of work, 
everyone, you know, has an equal say. It's fully democratized. Um, a lot of people say, well, if it's so democratized um, and there's no kings, why can someone like Elon crash the price? And that goes back to just, you know, it's a free market. We're always going to look up to people like that. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, the network itself is centralized. I mean, this goes to show how early we are. I think it's bullish, especially when the price is 70000 uh, and and one man can move the market that much. I, I think that, you know, that just goes to show how immature it is. Uh, but hopefully Lewis has totally. his, his, uh, his oh, question ready to fire away. Let's hear it. So as Kyle mentioned, Satoshi Nakamoto is your grandfather. Uh, <laughs> but just curious, you know, you have a lot of exposure in the space. You get to talk theoretically to a lot of people who theoretically know a lot. Do you have a theory on the actual identity of Satoshi? A, it doesn't have to be a person. Just are you sure it's a group? It's a person. It's well, I mean, he knows him personally. I mean, the fact that you actually know him personally. Not my grandpa. I don't want to get in trouble with the the community. Random kid, Colton Sakamoto, like says he's related to Satoshi. (laughs) No, we're saying it. It's true. Okay. All right. right, right. Um, Who I think it is. I don't know. Um, Obviously no one knows. I don't have like a great theory on it. Pete Rizzo's podcast with Pomp um, pretty recently was good. He kind of tracks Satoshi throughout. I think it's really important that we don't know who it is just, you know, for that centralization or lack thereof figure. I think that's super important for the mission of Bitcoin. Um, I mean, you have your handful of people that everyone thinks it is. Your Hal Finney's, your Nick Zabos, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery. That's the answer we all like to hear. Um, another question for me, actually. And and uh, this will be my last one, I, I promise. Said last question. Right. Uh, perfect. Um, I'm not going to. That was two questions ago, actually. But so in my email that I sent to you originally, just responding and, and saying, you know, I wasn't going to do the uh, Pomp Crypto course. I wrote to Pomp about how I think that, you know, the, the heights that he could potentially reach are, are you know, a prob- like really unmatched in history. Like, I think that his future value whether or not he really hits the highest bar is so high uh, that it's it's kind of hard to to put into words. Do you, Do you think? Why? Like the, I mean, first, real quick. Sure. Um, well, there's a lot of things. I know a lot about the guy. So, like, military background, obviously super disciplined, um, has built this this audience around um, you know an industry. It's like you know it comes back to the entrepreneur thing. It's like. Um, you know, bad entrepreneur, good market, they're probably going to do all right. Good entrepreneur, bad market, they're, they're probably screwed. And Pomp is right. doing really well in a really good market that's set up for the future. Uh, he was doing really good investments beforehand with, um, you know, uh, the, the startups that he invested in. He, he had Snapchat. He has, a, he has experience at Facebook. Um, and, and so, and he's, and now like in the crypto space, it's almost a badge of honor for him to have invested in you. And so like, I, I don't know, obviously, and you know, I'm better than me and this might just be completely out of left field, but I feel like if I owned the company, I would give pump better terms than uh, other investors because of the um, clout that, that he brings. Uh, and I think it's deserved. Um, and, and I think that, you know, with his followers, with the media, I, I think with the, um, the Bitcoin, like, the future of that i think um that he could be a trillionaire i know that's a hot take but i really do believe that he could be um and so like what do you what do you think 
Yeah, I've learned so much from working with him in just the short time that we have. But first of all, there's, you, you probably wonder on the outside, like, you know, what's this guy like? Um, you know, he's tweeting all the time. He's all over. He has his YouTube. He has podcasts. Seems like the guy never sleeps. Like, what's he actually like? And he's a really good dude. Mm -hmm. Like, what you see is what I've got with him. Um, he gives me, you know, pretty much full autonomy with the course um, to do whatever I see fit. And same thing with the job board. Um, so he's just he's just a good dude. And I think, you know, him being authentic really shows. And I think that's part of how he's built his audience. Um, secondly, the guy just works super hard. He is always working on something. And I think to work that hard, you have to really enjoy it. It, it probably doesn't feel like work to him, you know, doing podcasts, interviewing cool people like you guys are doing, um, you know, helping people get jobs or whatnot. I think he really just enjoys the process of winning and help and helping win as well. Yeah. Um, he plays that. positive some games. Yeah. Balaji talks a lot about the win and help win. And I think Pomp kind of epitomizes that, but um, plays positive some games, wants everyone around him to succeed. I think that's why a lot of people want him, you know, on the investment team as well. And then the last thing is the guy just plays like he has nothing to lose. Um, he's always looking for asymmetric bets. He talked about this on his podcast with Matt James and bachelor. Um, what I was listening to today and his said his advice to his 20 year old self was just to, to take bigger hacks, you know, going back to the baseball analogy. Um, he actually said slugging percentage, not batting average, which is something I, I totally agree with. It's like, you might as well, you know, take a big hack and, and try and hit the ball over the fence because that's a run rather than just trying to slap a single the other way and hoping that other people hit you around too. Um, and he said something else that stood out. It's like the work for, you know, succeeding is going to be the same, whether you want to be, average or you want to be exceptional obviously if you're exceptional it's going to be a little bit harder but you know why not just take that extra step if if the upside is asymmetrical absolutely that's a really good answer um you know exactly what i had hoped for and we don't know him but we will know him we will get him on the podcast uh it's we'll meet him in my totally I don't know. I'm right the guy who tries to meet Paul. Uh, are you guys going i'm going i'm not going let's go yeah i'll be yeah. there i will not be there. come on kyle you're already you're already over there Long story. Uh, I, w I will not be in attendance, though. Right. Um, I do think that we could, you know, have a whole cod podcast on Balaji. Lots to unpack there. Um, I, did, I do have one more question. Go for it, yeah. Liz. Probably wrap up. But one common theme we've kind of observed on the podcast and studied ourselves is the apprenticeship model, which is kind of what you're in right now, right? A very, I'm not going to say unstructured, but like, you know, your job description was meme officer. Now you're basically the CEO of a company and the, I don't know what your role is at the course, but it sounds like you have a lot of autonomy there too. So what's your, do you recommend, you know, young people start their career with apprenticeships as opposed to, you know, you're yourself just applying for the roles in a crypto company. And if so, how would you advise someone find the right person to apprentice and get them to want to take you on as a mentee? Yeah. So I think you have to learn by doing with anything. You know, I got my MBA and I always joke around that I, that I learned nothing. Um, similar to what I say to people that are like, you know, should I invest in crypto? Just get off the sidelines is, is my advice and, and do what you're comfortable with. Um, start somewhere. You got to put one foot in front of the other. You got to figure it out. You got to dive in and, and sink or swim. Um, in terms of like finding mentors, um, you know, most people in a situation, you know, where they're successful, um, I think want to help other people too. By and large, I mean, obviously you have your outliers that, um, you know, might not be approachable or whatever, but I think people want to help. Um, so just, you know, continuing to reach out to, to people that you want to, uh, you know, help out. 
Well, Colton, I think that this has been a great podcast. We're both really grateful to you for coming on and, and for uh, shooting the shit with us. Uh, where should we send people to find you and to, to learn more about everything we've talked about? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at CJSakamoto15. Um, that's probably where I'm most active. Um, I have the other stuff, don't use it as much. Don't have any TikTok dances or anything like that that I'm known <laughs> for. But um, we'll have some memes on Twitter and you guys can follow me there. PompCryptoJobs.com. Thanks, Colton. Thanks, Pomp. Thanks, Lewis. Appreciate it. I was going to say, if you want to read some really, really solid essay that Colton Sakamoto wrote, just look up Bitcoin white paper. Uh, real good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. We'll wrap it up here. Thanks for having me, guys. And that wraps up our interview with Colton Sakamoto, uh, the grandson of Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of Bitcoin. Uh, fun fact, I know we covered it in the interview, but I just wanted to talk about it one more time. Um, no, but really, I've got three quick takeaways uh, from this awesome interview that we just did. Uh, the first is picking the right market. I know I talked about it a little bit um, in the interview, but uh, there's this really neat saying that I, I like a lot, and it's, you know, a bad entrepreneur in a good market is going to do pretty well, but a great entrepreneur in a bad market won't get very far. And I think that Colton has picked a really good market to be in, especially for the next 10, 20 years as, as crypto and blockchains eat the world, as we say. Um, I think that choosing crypto as sort of the space in which you're innovating is is genius. And I think that the way that uh, Colton is doing it specifically is, is also genius. Um, the second is that you never know what hitting send might do for your life. Uh, you know, he just randomly decided that he was going to tweet back at Pomp when Pomp put out a, a meme competition and he was like, okay, like what's the worst that could happen? And as it turns out, um, it had a pretty big upside because it changed his entire life. You know, he, he got, um, to work on Pomp crypto jobs. He got, um, to work on Maven. He's now super connected with Pomp. He was just at the Bitcoin conference. I mean, his entire life, uh, changed pretty much from, from making, creating, and most importantly, sending the meme out. And then the third thing, um, is something that I was thinking about when I was writing that second takeaway. And it's that it often all happens at once. Um, in tools of Titans, a book by Tim Ferriss, there's a guy who talks about how, or well, Tim Ferriss talks about a guy who journals every day. He had journaled every day, every night for like 20 years. And he said that one of his, um, most important takeaways is just how, um, unevenly distributed some of his biggest breakaway moments were and how uh, a lot of times it'll just be one weekend and his entire life changes in one weekend. And so, you know, that is just to say, keep going, keep, um, keep working at things, even if they may, might seem pointless because, uh, oftentimes it all happens at once. And those are my takeaways. And thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing, Kyle. Three takeaways for me as well. First one is about taking the shot. He talked about how he almost didn't send the meme. He almost didn't say anything. And then he said, you know what, let's just see what happens. So let's take that shot. You never, never know what will happen. Other half takeaway there is just trust. You'll figure it out. When Pomp was like, hey, do you also want to help me with this job site? Or also want to help me with this course? He didn't know how to do either of those things, but he trusted he would learn and figure it out. And if you look it up, he's done a pretty good job. Second takeaway is a glimpse into the future of the crypto internet enabled a future. We asked at one point, Colton goes, yep, I think in terms of memes and sats. So if memes are the 
communication currency and stats are the currency currency. That's just a little glimpse of the future. I thought that was a funny line. Third takeaway about actually getting a job in crypto, dev is in high demand, but also so is knowledge and passion. If you don't want to get a technical job, what the really non-technical jobs care about is one, some understanding of finance, uh, but also just knowledge and passion about crypto. That's all I have to say about this episode. Thank you for listening. If you're not already, please subscribe. And otherwise, we'll see you in a week or so with the next episode. Bye-bye.